We're going to look together to Lord's Day 6, which is on page 13 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. But first, I'd like to read with you from Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16. Now, this section of Leviticus, remember, this was all written as God's people were in the wilderness preparing to go into the promised land. And that was going to open a new uh, segment in the history of God's people, a time of, of being settled, of having received at least the earthly promises, but also looking forward to the greater promises to come, the, the fulfillment of all that those earthly promises foretold. And so, in Leviticus, God was setting forth a lot of regulations, a lot of uh, commandments and statutes that would order the life of Israel. Now these, understand, these statutes and these practices, they were not by any means a different means of salvation than we have. Nor were they simply a different kind of worship than we enjoy. It wasn't that weighty and it wasn't that light. Instead, what we had here was a series of overlapping, ongoing sermons that pointed Israel forward to what we have seen, what we have received in Christ. This was very significantly, very truly, commands that were intended to point out Jesus so that they could learn to trust in the One who was to come, the Savior who was to redeem them, in whom they must already begin to trust. And Leviticus 16 is something of a climax among those statutes. Because we read here of the Day of Atonement, which was to be held once a year. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash, and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering, and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall kill the bull as the sin offering which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire uh, from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. 
And he shall put incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And he, so she, he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness." There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. And he shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land. And he shall release the goat into the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, and he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as a priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments, and he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel all their sins once a year. And he did. As the Lord commanded Moses. Amen. We read that, brothers and sisters, in preparation for this summary of God's Word that we find in Lord's Day 6. You recall last time that we uh, began entering into the second major section of the Catechism, the section that talks about how we are delivered from our misery and reconciled to God. We looked at 
the debt that man owes because of his sin, and what the alternatives might be for paying that debt, whether we ourselves could pay the debt, whether some other creature could pay the debt, what we found was that the mediator and deliverer for whom we should look must be truly human and truly righteous, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, he must also be true God. Lord's Day 6 takes up that lesson and says, Why must he be truly human and truly righteous? And the answer is, God's justice demands it. Man has sinned, man must pay for his sin. But a sinner cannot pay for others. Why then must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Well, who is this mediator? True God and at the same time truly human and truly righteous. He is our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given us to set us completely free and to make us right with God. Well, the question then is, how do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and he portrayed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law and finally he fulfilled it through his own dear son. Amen. Brothers and sisters, beloved of our Lord in Christ, nothing that I am going to say to you tonight is new. None of it. It's not new, first of all, in that it's not something that the catechism itself has not already, in some respect, told us. It has already told us that no creature other than a man can pay the debt for the sins of men. It's already told us that we need more than merely a man, we need a perfect man to pay that debt. It's already told us that no mere creature is able to withstand the wrath of God against sin. And yet, Lord's Day 6 is not content with those assertions. Instead, it pauses. It backtracks just a smidge and seemingly repeats itself to ask, why a man? Why righteous? Why truly God? The same questions are raised. The same ground is covered, except it's not really exactly the same ground. We've touched on these truths, but we've not explored them. We've not delved deeply into them. And our catechism is nothing if not a patient and thorough teacher, as it should be. Because these matters before us, although they're not unfamiliar to us, they're absolutely essential. They stand at the very heart, at the very core of our faith. If we get this wrong, we get everything wrong. If we get this wrong, nothing else that we talk about, nothing else that we discuss really matters. Because this is what reconciles us to God. This is what brings us peace and life. So our catechism calls us to pause to examine, to inquire, to make absolutely certain that we understand and that we have no doubt. We must be fully convinced that this source of comfort to which the catechism points us is the comfort, the truth that God himself has revealed to us in his word. Because if it is anything else, then we absolutely must abandon it and seek the truth. 
So in that sense, the questions of Lord's Day 6 are not new. They've been introduced already in Lord's Day 5. They've been hinted at before that. But now we're going to dig in. We're going to spend just a bit of time ensuring that we really understand and that the truths that are found here really come from God's Word. And the lesson is not true in another sense as well. Or is not, not true, is not new in another sense as well. And that's that the lesson we find taught to us in Lord's Day 6, the lesson that was spread through the apostles after Jesus' ascension, it was not new then. Our catechism is absolutely correct that this gospel was revealed through the prophets and through Moses and the law that he, sent, he brought. It was revealed to Abram and to his children and their children after them. In fact, it was revealed already in the garden on the very day that our first father sinned. All the way back there, God began to reveal His gospel, began to reveal what must happen and what He would accomplish in order to redeem us. And so when Philip first met Jesus, spoke with Him, saw His works, immediately he knew not that this was something new, but that this was the one of whom God's Word had long spoken. The one for whom God's people had long looked. And so when he went and found Nathanael, he cried out, We have found him of whom Moses in the law wrote. And later Jesus himself would testify that the words of the prophets and the writings of Moses, these are they which testify of me. And so he was able after his resurrection to explain using the words of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms to explain exactly why every detail had to happen in fulfillment of God's promises, God's commands. What we are discussing here is the gospel which John the Baptist proclaimed, the message that Isaiah taught, the hope that Jeremiah clung to, the comfort of Habakkuk. It is not a new message. But it is the true message without which we cannot have life. Right at the center, at the heart of what we believe and what we must believe is this message that our peace with God requires a specific sin offering. That's the theme with which we deal this evening. Our peace with God requires a specific sin offering. And we're going to consider two aspects of that sin offering which make it very specific and absolutely perfect. Looking first at how it is an offering of human perfection to suffer our death. Now when we talk about a, a sin offering here, that goes back to our last lesson from Lord's Day 5. You'll recall how that Lord's Day began by stating the reality of our situation. God requires that His justice be satisfied, right? The question itself asks, 
According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment, both in this world and forever after. How then can we escape that punishment and return to God's favor? Well, God requires that His justice be satisfied. That's our reality. As those who were born and who live as sinful human beings. Adam's sin left us guilty before God and deserving of His judgment. Our sins have confirmed that judgment and have deepened our debt. So we are sinful. And that means we're debtors. We owe God the debt of justice. And that debt will be paid. The only question is, by whom will it be paid? We can't pay it without being consigned eternally to hell. That's the only way we can pay it, and that is, in fact, the default. Because no other man can pay it if he is sinful. He's already got a debt bigger than he can pay. No mere animal can pay it because God will not accept their sacrifice. And even if God would accept the sacrifice of a sinful man or an animal, none of them could withstand the eternal weight of God's wrath against sin. It would utterly demolish and destroy them before they even paid the debt. So what? What does that mean then? Does that mean that we have no hope to attain peace with God? Does that mean there is no possibility of escape? Well, there is hope if our debt is paid through the sacrifice of one specific sin offering. The Bible says much about who it is that will pay our debt. As I said, the whole of the Old Testament testifies to how God was going to overcome that crucial problem of mankind. It spoke of a Savior. The Savior who would fulfill all of God's promises, who would meet all of His demands, who would fulfill everything we needed to have fulfilled. And if we boil it all down, if we reduce it to its most essential parts, we end up with three requirements. The first two fit together. He must be a man. He must be a human being just like us. And he must be perfect. He must be utterly sinless, unlike us. Our Savior, who would obtain peace for us with God, He must present Himself as an offering of human perfection, who is able to suffer our death, to pay our debt. That's what God taught His people through commands like that which we found in Leviticus 16. If we were to summarize this chapter in its barest essence, it would be this. Someone must die. God's people have sinned, priest and people alike. That sin is a debt and the debt must be paid. And to pay that debt, someone must die. That's the reality. That's the essential message. Now there's nuance to that message, but that's the lesson that God's people had to learn there, that someone must die. These are regulations for what the Jews call Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was a celebration held every year, an annual reminder that God's people are guilty before the Lord, that they cannot stand before Him on the basis of their own righteousness, that they need peace. They need someone to accomplish peace for them. And the sacrifices and statutes of this day would set before them a visible reminder. This is the cost. This is the price that has to be paid. 
Notice the details that are set forth there. The offering that is brought, the price that is paid, is brought by a high priest. This was a descendant of Levi and of Aaron. Yet ultimately, he was simply a Levite. He was a man. He was one of them, taken from among Israel to represent Israel. When he came on that day, if you noticed at the start of the chapter, the Lord was very specific about what he must wear. First, he must cleanse his body, and then he must put on linen garments. A linen shirt, linen pants, a linen ephod, a linen turban. Linen was a fine fabric, not cheap, carefully woven. But what made it stand out was the fact that it was white, pure white. That was important, that was symbolic. Because he had to enter into the, the Holy of Holies. Now, kids, you might remember studying in Sunday school what the tabernacle or the temple was like. As you came toward the tabernacle, you came first to the altar of burnt offerings. And then you came to the holy place where you found the altar of incense and the table of showbread and the, the golden lampstand. And beyond that, there was a curtain. And inside that curtain, there was one piece of furniture. There was the Ark of the Covenant on top of which was the mercy seat. And that was representative of the throne of God Himself. As a matter of fact, He even said that in Leviticus 16. I will dwell there in the smoke upon the mercy seat. And the high priest had to bring the evidence of the debt being paid into the presence of God, into the most holy place. Now we know that was merely a model of the true throne room of God which is in heaven. But again, this was to teach the people. And what it taught them was not only did that debt have to be paid, not only did it have to be brought before God, but it had to be brought by someone who was holy, by someone who had no defilement, by someone who had no sin. So that's what the high priest was teaching them by the way that he dressed and by the way that he behaved. That the offering, the payment for our debt has to be brought by a man. But a man who has no sin. Except there was a problem. They had sin. The purity of the high priest was merely symbolic. It was a purity of cloth but not of soul. And that's why the first thing he had to do was sacrifice for his own sin. Despite the clothes that he wore, he was merely a man. His soul was not pure white. It was covered with the, the stain of his sin. And that was a real problem. Because... It, if we're to have actual peace, then God demands actual perfection. Our offering must be presented by someone who is holy enough, pure enough, perfect enough to enter into the presence of God, and enough is absolute. He must be without any stain of sin, any imperfection, any rebellion at all. More than that, he who must bring us peace must himself bear our sin. That's what the scapegoat was all about. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel. 
and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. This goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. This goat was to symbolically receive all of the guilt of their sin, taking it all on their head, bearing it all away into a place where there was no one, no companionship, no help, no hope, no life, no nothing. Now that's important. We'll talk about some of the specifics of why that's important in in just a few minutes, but for now we need to notice the priest laid that guilt on the head of an animal because he himself couldn't do it. He would lead, lead that animal out into the wilderness where a representative of the priest would because he himself couldn't bear the full weight of God's wrath for our sin, couldn't bear being cast out of the presence of God and of all goodness. Now all of this was done to show Israel the requirements that must be met to cover over our guilt, to pay our debt. It was a visual catechizing, a sermon in pantomime, if you will. But while it set the message before them, it didn't accomplish what it proclaimed. They used animals for their atonement offerings. They used animals to bear their sin. But animals are not men. And so Hebrews 10 says it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. We need an offering who is a man because men have sinned. And because our God is just, He won't punish a mere animal for the sins of men. Animals weren't made to bear our image. Animals weren't given the same kind of responsibility, the same kind of duties as men were. And so because men have sinned, a man must pay for their sin. Leviticus showed the way, taught what was necessary, but it didn't accomplish what was necessary. Only Jesus could do that. He came as the priest who was able to mediate between sinful men and the holy God. Because he was born not of the line of Levi and Aaron, but he came as one of the line of Melchizedek, one who has no beginning, one who has no ancestry, one who was before Adam and therefore exempt from the guilt of Adam. He came as the perfect priest, who has no original sin, who has no sin of his own, and he came also as the perfect sin offering. He bore the complete reality of our humanity accepting sin. Hebrews 2 tells us. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And so in verse 17 of Hebrews 2, it says, In all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He came as a man, as one of us, and yet one who is utterly perfect. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4, verse 15. That's crucial. He had to be just like us. He had to, be, had to undergo all of the 
temptations, all of the trials, all of the difficulties of life in this world, and yet without sin, without fault, without failure, without falling. And he did. And so Hebrews 7 tells us such a high priest, such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Only Jesus could be the perfect high priest that we needed to enter not just a model of the throne room of God, but its reality. Only Jesus could come as the perfect offering himself, not laying the guilt of God's people on the head of an animal, not slaughtering an animal for the sins that we committed, but offering up himself as the perfect sacrifice that perfectly fulfilled God's justice so that the debt could truly be paid. Only Jesus could come as an offering of human perfection to suffer our death. And yet one other thing was needed. He who would take on the debt of our sin also must be able to face God's wrath. Now that's a tall order that no mere man, that no mere creature could fulfill. And that's another lesson that we find in Leviticus 16, that our peace offering requires an offering of divine power that is able not only to receive God's wrath, but also to endure it and yet rise up for our life. And so that is our second point, an offering of divine power to rise up for our life. Look again at the prescriptions for the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. First, we have sin offerings. Sin offerings were meant to answer for the people's unintentional sins. Sins committed without malice. Sins committed either without intending rebellion against God or even without knowledge that one was sinning. Sin offerings were the primary focus on the Day of Atonement. Because sins committed rebelliously, intentional sins, those had a different offering. And that offering had to be brought every day. And also when one recognized that he had committed a sin. So the focus on the Day of Atonement was on forgiveness for those countless sins that we don't even recognize we're committing. Those countless sins that we don't even think about, and yet we commit them time and time and time and time and time again every day of our lives. But that wasn't the only sin or the only offering brought that day. The priest also had to bring a burnt offering. Because those intentional sins, those rebellions, they were to be found. And those also had to be covered. Now in practice, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the two offerings. In both cases, an animal must die, showing us that sin requires death. In both cases, there was to be a shedding of blood. Forgiveness never comes without the shedding of blood. In the case of the burnt offering, the blood was sprinkled, then poured out. In the case of the sin offering, the blood was used to purify the sanctuary and its furnishings, and it was sprinkled in front of the the mercy seat. And then finally, there was to be a burning of meat, of skin, of fat, of bones. 
Some was offered on the altar, but most was taken outside the camp and burned in an empty place. And that too was part of the lesson that the offering that would be brought for our sin, for our rebellion, it must utterly destroy the one who bears it. Reconciliation can come not through payment of part of the debt, but all of it. A debt that's worthy of God's wrath. A debt that must destroy the one who bears it. That's what we deserve. And that's the debt that none of us, that no finite creature could pay and yet rise up afterward. And then there's the goat, that scapegoat. That scapegoat is to teach us part of what would do the destroying. All of the sins of God's people are confessed over the head of that goat and then it's taken out to a desolate place. Understand that where this goat was taken was not a place of life. It was a place where there was no, was very little water. Almost no vegetation. Very little lives out there because the land can sustain very little life. And a goat without assistance in such a place, he's going to die. It's not a question of if, it's only a question of when and by what means. Will he fall to his death? Will he die of thirst? Will he die of hunger? Will he be hunted down by predators? But whatever comes to him, he will die. And he will die alone. Cut off from the presence and the power and the blessing of God. You see, that's what our sins deserve. The same lesson is taught in those offerings by fire. This is what we deserve. To be utterly demolished, destroyed, cut off from all that is good. Now no mere man can take that, can endure that, and yet return to the presence of God. Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was a poor man, a beggar. Unable to work, unable to help himself, he laid at the gate of this rich man, this unnamed rich man. And the rich man, though he saw Lazarus there begging, he, he wouldn't even give his scraps to poor Lazarus. Lazarus endured a miserable life, poor, hungry, covered with sores. But according to Jesus, when he died, this is Luke 16, when he died... Lazarus, who had hoped in the Lord, who had looked to him for his help, he was taken to the bosom of Abraham. He was taken to the place where those who trusted in Christ go. Not so for the rich man. When he died, he went elsewhere. He was cut off from all comfort, sent to a place of torment. And when he called out, seeing Abraham in the distance, when he called out, asking him to send Lazarus with just a drop of water on his fingertip to ease his suffering, Abraham said, no, there is a chasm between us that none can cross. There was no help for the rich man. He was cut off from all blessing, from all help, from all hope. That's exile. That's what our sin deserves. The blessed news of the gospel is that that's what Jesus endured. 
No man could withstand the destructive, death-dealing, burning, consuming wrath due for our sin. Only God could endure it, and Jesus did. No man could endure the agony and the heartbreak of exile, not merely from men and from their comforts, but from the comfort of the blessing of God Himself. Only Jesus could, and He did. No man could experience all of this, absorb all of this, take the fullness of it on himself. Not just for one individual, but for countless multitudes and all of their sins. No man could endure all of that except God. Only God. And in Jesus he did. We read Leviticus 16 and it teaches us much. It teaches us much. But what's described there, that's all it can do is teach. Beyond its teaching purpose, it couldn't accomplish anything. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Every priest stands ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Brothers and sisters, that's what set Jesus apart. Not just that he was the perfect man, that he had no sin, but whereas any of us would have been utterly and completely destroyed before we even paid the full debt, he paid all of it for everyone who would ever trust in Him. And then He rose up again and sat down at the right hand of His Father. No mere man could do it, only God. In Him, the Lord was answering the prayers of His saints throughout the years, prayers like those found in Psalm 25. Remember, O Lord, Your tender mercy and Your loving kindness. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to Your mercy, remember me for Your goodness' sake, O Lord. In sending Jesus, God was answering that prayer. He was remembering His mercy. He was pouring out His grace. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Look upon my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Thus the saints of God prayed throughout the years. And Jesus came and He took their desolation and affliction on Himself. He endured the affliction and the pain that they deserved, that we deserve so that we could know blessing and joy and life everlasting. The psalmist prayed, Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. And God answered by sending His Son as our Redeemer. None who looks to Him shall ever be ashamed. In Jesus, God has perfectly answered our prayer. We receive blessing because He accepted curse. We receive forgiveness because our guilt was laid on Him. We have been embraced because He was cast off. Again, from Hebrews 10. 
Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is, through His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. He created a pathway. He tore down that curtain between man and the, holy, the most holy place. And He gave us access into the very throne room of God. Only Jesus was able. Only He had human perfection that allowed Him to suffer the death that we deserved. Only He had the divine power that allowed Him to rise up triumphant over it. Only Jesus. And He did it so that we could have life. So brothers and sisters, entrust yourself to Him. Stand in awe of His mercy and entrust yourself to Him, knowing that no one else can meet your need. No one else can pay your debt, but He paid all of it. So that you could live in Him. Give Him your trust. Give Him your praise. And to Him be all the glory. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we stand in awe that Your mercy is so astoundingly great. May we never take for granted that which You have accomplished in Christ. May we never dim or dull the significance of the sins that we have committed. Nor may we be able, Lord, to take lightly the forgiveness that was purchased at such an amazing price. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.